A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head-to-head to see which one does it better on this week's episodes. In the red corner, it's only one of the greatest gangster movies, nay, one of the greatest movies ever committed to celluloid, as Martin Scorsese tells the epic tale of the rise and fall of Henry Hill. They're not bad, boys. We're talking 1990s Goodfellas. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. To me, being a gangster was better than being president of the United States. It meant being somebody in the neighborhood that was full of nobodies. While in the blue corner, our challenger this week has a tough task. But if there is one director who's in with a shot, it's Paul Thomas Anderson and his sophomore feature charting the rise and fall of Dirk Diggler. Yes, taking on Goodfellas this week, it's 1997's Boogie Nights. Everyone's given one special thing, right? Everyone's blessed with one special thing. In 1977... A kid from nowhere had a dream of getting somewhere. Jack Horner has found something special in newcomer Dirk Diggler. So what connects these two films and which one does it better? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken. Hello, Clash Butters. I like this one. One dog goes one way, the other dog goes the other. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. How are you both doing? This is wonderful. Because of the power of Zahoom, I can see both your lovely faces this week. Thank you. It is nice, isn't it? We should yeah. do it like this all the time. Save the travel money. Do you know what I mean? No, no. No, I don't want to. <laughs> don't want to all do right. that. I, I right. can't wait to be able to touch you both. <laughs> With an invitation. Yeah, of, co- of course, with an invitation. Chris, how are you? Yes, good. Although uh, the fact that I can see you both, I don't think uh, that means I won't necessarily talk over you anyway. So um, <laughs> fingers crossed, but 
I'm not convinced. Excellent. Is that because these are your choices and you're very keen to effuse about them? Lots to say. Pages and pages and pages of notes. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, good. Good, because I was ready for you to be like, ugh, you've done too much on boogie nights. But if you've got a lot and I've got a lot, strap in. Thursday's (laughs) going to be a hell of a show. So, Clash this week. Goodfellas, Clashes with Boogie Nights, or as I'm calling it, Drugs Are Bad. (laughs) These were Chris's choices. Uh, So remind us of the first clue you gave on last week's show, Chris, that I do remember declaring was a little bit open-ended. Sex and drugs and rock and roll and disco and violence. Yes. Uh, So you followed that up on Twitter with a little more help, and it was... God, you put me on the spot. It was uh, both films focus on the dark side of the American dream by chronicling the rise and fall of an anti-hero. Right. Uh, so after that clue, uh, the uh, the guesses came in. Um, we had on Twitter at ClashPod, also on Instagram at ClashPod. Uh, Jim Lynch went with Scarface versus The Godfather. Peter Stirrup trying to make it three weeks in a row as the guessing champ. Scarface versus American Psycho. Unfortunately, you've already done American Psycho versus Rules of Attraction. Daniel Flynn, Goodfellas versus American Gangster. Reese Page, Saturday Night Fever versus Boogie Nights. Both the correct films appeared in a variety of other suggestions. A couple that I liked, uh, which didn't feature this week's films. Joel Trodden, this is a potential future clash. What do you think of this? Lord of War versus American Maid. I like it. Uh, John No H suggested this. This might be even better. This might tickle you. Point Break versus Heat. <laughs> yes. All right. Big yes. Chris? Yeah, five. All right. What was your third clue then, Chris? Because no one got it after two clues this week. I gave everyone the years. Yeah, <laughs> you did. He just gave you the years. He just gave you the years, uh, which got NC Lever or N Cleaver 84 and Bath Bites to the right answer, but beating them to the punch. Congratulations, Andrew Logan, Boogie Nights versus Goodfellas. You are our guessing champ this week. Well done. Shall we do the connections between these two films? Yeah, I, I was just going to start by saying why I picked them, to be honest, um, because we had talked about doing Casino and Goodfellas previously, and a couple of people sent that in. Because they are superficially quite similar. You've got the gangster film, Scorsese, and some of the cast. But over Christmas, I was reading a very, very good book called The Sundance Kids by James Mottram. And in that, he writes, Boogie Nights undeniably follows the traditional rise and fall structure of the gangster film exemplified by Goodfellas. That the downfall of Dirk echoes that of Ray Lotter's Henry Hill strengthens the comparison. Both are brought to their knees by their addiction to cocaine, which eventually addles their powers of judgment. Both seek out surrogate families. For Hill, it's with a bunch of New York wise guys. For Dirk, it's with a group of damaged souls at the heart of the porn business. So thematically, there's a lot more going on here. Hence, it's slightly, on the on the surface, seem like quite disparate films, but that's why I picked them. Okay. I can see what you're doing. You're covering your base before the tirade comes in on Twitter of why are we not doing Goodfellas in Casino? You're prepping for that, right? No, people are welcome to write that in, but we're doing Goodfellas and Boogie Nights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, we are. We are doing good fellas. Yeah, connections. Boogie nights. What connections did you spot uh, beyond what I just well, read out? Beyond what you just read out, nothing. Um, so yeah, a, a life of crime and sex really does pay until it sort of doesn't, but it does pay mostly. Yeah, I got drugs are bad. Uh, there's a few more though. Um, not having to queue to get into bars uh, and or nightclubs, or I call uh, as I call it uh, a normal evening out. <laughs> <laughs> <Are you> sh- 
Are you sure that you want people? <laughs> pathetic. Absolutely pathetic. I'm playing, play, playing up to something. I don't know what, but I'm playing up to something. Um, all right, then. Uh, people showing off their hilariously hideous new homes. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. Tours yep. of kitsch houses, because they're, they're not yeah. just the horrible. They are, they're beautifully horrible. Mm. Um, tracking shots, obviously. Long tracking shots. Yeah, who can do the longest shot with no yeah. cuts? Well done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the only other one I've got is films that start off nice and fun and then make you feel really anxious for the second half, so you drink the desperados you found at the back of the fridge and then your notes aren't legible anymore. <laughs> <laughs> bad wigs. Uh, lots and lots of bad wigs in both these films. Uh, your parents hate your first job. Really hate it. <laughs> Uh, jukebox soundtracks. This is something that sort of um, Scorsese kicked off in '73 with Mean Streets. Him and him and Lucas doing American Graffiti. That was where the jukebox soundtrack kicked off, and and uh, Scorsese's gone on to use that in a lot of films. And and Paul Thomas Anderson's obviously copying that here. And also song choices that are a bit on the nose as well. <laughs> Lon- Lonely Boy in Boogie Nights and Leader of the Pack in um, in uh, Goodfellas is kind of saying what you see. Yeah, I'd go with that. Good. Any more? No. No. Great. So I'll be hosting Boogie Nights as a pod pool party on Thursday. Bring your trunks. Which means today, Victoria is our guide through Goodfellas. Victoria, take us on a journey. Rising star gangster Henry Hill is told, never rat on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. He will totally ignore that. And the other rule about dealing drugs whilst trying to make a big dinner. But first, we'll be treated to a glorious two-hour mob home movie as Henry moves up through the ranks of the East Side Wise Guys, from selling cigarettes to eventually pulling off the biggest cash robbery on American soil at the time, the 1978 Lufthansa heist. But it's the drugs that get him, and Henry eventually has no choice but to turn state witness, reduce to a life as an average nobody, a schnook, proving there's literally nothing worse than a toweling dressing gown. (laughs) (laughs) Which is true. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, if he was wearing a a nice kimono in that final shot, it would be a different end to the film. It is the toweling dressing gown. Of which yeah, I own too two. Small. I know you do. And it's a misstep. Let me tell you, it's a yeah. bad idea. No, it's fine because they're ankle length. His is knee length, which is a very different look. I think I can yeah. get away with mine. And anyway, a toweling dressing gown, they dry you so well. Mm. Yes. Okay, so um, let, I'm, I'm going to talk about the first time I saw this film and then I'm going to ask you, but it, it's it's got a little bit of a, a bit of a segue. So bear with me. Right? So the first, yeah, I just, because I've, I've just really excited to talk about this film and what it means to me and to find out what it means to you as well. So the first time I saw this, I was, as I always was back in the day, in Mark's bedroom when I was like 21 years old. And I really <laughs> did, <laughs> and I didn't want to watch it. And he was like, you have to see it. And I, I was just like, oh, I thought it was going to be just like The Godfather, which I wasn't in the mood for. But if I'm being honest, I was afraid to watch it because I think in life we're all a little bit scared of being found out that we don't actually know anything and we don't actually know what we're talking about. And it's quite easy on that premise to avoid like the classics because once you invite yourself into that conversation, there's the risk that you won't have the right opinion or you'll miss something that everybody loves. And it's easier to avoid those films and pretend that you're just not in the mood for them rather than to take that risk and that vulnerability that comes with 
involving yourself in the conversation. So anyway, he puts it on and I'm like, oh. And then in about 10 seconds, I was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And because of Goodfellas, um, it gave me the confidence and the sort of the background to just then go and seek out the other classics that I'd avoided like my whole life. And so just covered off a lot of amazing stuff in that year. So then I did like, I'd never seen... Um, Mean Streets, Raging Bull, I did Easy Rider, The Third Man, Taxi Driver, The French Connection, and just went for it and just tried to enjoy them. And so I owe Goodfellas a lot for that. So that's my history. What about you? Wow, we might not even have you on the pod. <laughs> we might <laughs> not have you on you the do? pod if you Goodfellas possibly opened the door for you to be able to sit here uh, with yeah. us and, and yeah. espouse your theories on film. So I guess thank you, Martin Scorsese and Goodfellas. Of the, all the things he's achieved in his life, I know that would mean a lot to him. <laughs> Mine's similar to that, but it kind of backfired a little bit because I must have seen this when I was when it came out when it when it came out on video. So I would have been about thirteen, and because my mum quite fancied Robert De Niro, whenever we were in the video shop, I'd convinced her to let me rent Robert De Niro films. She would never watch them with me, apart from I think we might have seen The Untouchables or Midnight Run, like the more family friendly films, and so. Uh, Watched Goodfellas, loved Goodfellas as a 13-year-old. Felt like I understood what was going on. Thought it was the best movie I'd ever seen. So went away and watched all of Martin Scorsese's back catalogue. Unfortunately, I was definitely too young to appreciate all of those films. So because of this, I walked Raging Bull too, like, too young, Mean Streets too young, King of Comedy too young, Taxi Driver too young. Those films a 13-year-old cannot understand, or certainly this 13-year-old couldn't. <laughs> and I really wish I could go back and stop myself and say, no, wait wait a bit longer to watch these ones. Watch Goodfellas again, but don't watch Taxi Driver right now because it's going to freak you the fuck out and you're not going to understand it. Oh, I so you're basically saying because you watched them too young, you never got to have that first experience of them at the right age. Yeah, I didn't like them. I didn't like them, and I think right. they're brilliant now. But I, I wish, I wish I'd, I wish I'd um, in, watched them for the first time when I was a bit more mature. Wow. Well, I'm really glad that both of you have such uh, elaborate explanations as to your history with this movie, because I have. Not a banner week for histories with this movie for me. Seen it a couple of times, once in the 90s, once more recently. I don't know when, but obviously the whole funny how, funny like a clown thing was something that was quoted a lot at school. Uh, well, I say quoted, misquoted a lot at school. No one could ever quite remember the words as they appear in the film. But that's it for me. It was never a big, uh, big thing on my list. So, yeah. Sorry. Okay. No, don't. But don't apologise. That's what this no. is all about. We're, we're sharing. We are connecting. It's it's not one-upmanship. You don't need a better story than, than mine and Chris's quite heartfelt stories. It's absolutely fine. Yeah. No, um, I, I don't feel I don't feel like I've let the team down in any way. <laughs> if that's what I feel good about. The fact. I think we're all coming at it from different angles, like you said before. You added the last bit about heartfelt. <laughs> right. So let's do a little bit of background. Um, I'm not going to do too much because I, I really want to talk for hours <laughs> about the film. Um, but this week, uh, some of this that I'm about to tell you comes from uh, the book Made Men, the story of Goodfellas by Glenn Kenny. And there's a GQ article from 2010, which is incredible because GQ got 60 members of cast and crew and some admirers of the film to, to sort of put together this oral history of Goodfellas. So if anyone is interested, they should look out that um, look out for that GQ article from 2010. It's brilliant. 
So here we go. Um, it is from a script by Nicholas Pileggi and Martin Scorsese, based on Pileggi's 1985 book, Wise Guy, A Life in a Mafia Family. Apparently, Nicholas Pileggi wrote for Associated Press, so he never had a byline, which meant he hung out with gangsters all the time, but they didn't know it was him that was <laughs> reporting his stories in the press. So he was sort of undercover, effectively. Um the book, as you know, is about Henry Hill, who was a mobster turned informant, and it talks about his life coming up through the ranks with Paul Vario, who becomes in the film Paul Cicero, played by Paul Savino, and working with Jimmy Burke, who becomes Jimmy Conway, Robert De Niro, and Tommy DeSimone, who becomes Tommy Vincent, played by Joe Pesci. So the book is optioned by Erwin Winkler. Martin Scorsese loved it. Um, he obviously, I mean, he once said because he's an Italian American, he would never make a movie about the mafia. Uh, but the story got the legend goes. He calls Pelleggi and he's like, I've been waiting for this book my entire life. And Nicholas Pelleggi's like, I've been waiting for this phone call my entire life. Um, so they, they work together to put the script together. They go through like about 12 drafts. They started trying to do it chronologically. And then they had the idea of putting the middle of the film in the beginning, which we'll talk about a lot more when we're going through the film. Um, in terms of, but that's, I mean, that's a big deal for me because you because you don't get to see him, you know he's a gangster in the first two seconds and you know that there's a lot of bad violence and all the rest of it. Um, it's, it is a sort of watching the rise of Henry, but you already know he's going to rise. So it's it changes the narrative structure in quite a significant way. Anyway. Uh, casting <laughs> Tom Cruise was considered for Henry um, really Otter talks a lot about he was not wanted not one bit <laughs> no one wanted him to be in this film they would rather according to him have had Eddie Murphy but really what they wanted was a big name and he wasn't a big name at the time so he had to petition quite hard to get the part and the person that was being considered for Karen to the point where Martin Scorsese went to talent scouter on Broadway at the time was Madonna which is weird but true um, and that's it. That's as much as I want to say, because who cares? Let's just get into this film. Anything else? Uh, the one bit of casting I like is, is John Malkovich nearly playing Jimmy Conway. Oh, yeah. they, 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 offered, <laughs> they offered it to him and he said it sort of came at a bad time in my life when I wasn't feeling well and didn't want to think about working. It's hard to explain why you end up in Aragon and not Goodfellas. <laughs> oh, I love yeah. him. It really made me laugh. It just made me laugh so much because it just didn't matter for the rest of it. I mean, obviously, Robert De Niro is, is perfect, but it is a bit of a weird thing how, like, in terms of movie lore, you end up on one path and not the other. It's it's bonkers. Okay, so what we're going to do, and Chris, you'll like this, because we had, like, um, a Clash Pod production meeting probably about a year ago where you were like, could you just try and stick to the key moments in the films rather than slavishly going through everything that makes you laugh? And I was like, no. But what I've done this week is I've done five key sections from the film. Oh, so you haven't? Good. Have you really? <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, oh, you're gonna you're gonna hate Thursday. Why have you done the same? No, I've done the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a line through, by line. <laughs> I've gone through it uh, in finite detail. Okay, great. Okay, so we're going to go through the five key sections. I don't have funny names for them, so Chris, that's fine. Your your crown is still intact for that. Um, but section number one, the opening. Um, which is- <laughs> <laughs> wow, you weren't kidding, huh? No, I'm not. I'm really not. And they, they sort of go downhill from there. So importantly the middle of the film is here the body of billy bats is in the trunk um we established that the violence you're going to see is real in so much as you can hear the sort of squelch as tommy puts this massive knife into the body of billy bats and finishes him off and then 
the greatest voiceover ever. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. The shot tracks and we're straight into Rags to Riches by Tony Bennett. The precision of the voiceover, the music, the editing by Thelma Schoonmacher, who works with Scorsese on everything. The first time I saw that, I could have watched it a hundred more times straight away and still been floored by it. How do you feel? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I certainly like the fact that this scene is here because I think if this scene didn't kick off the film, I think you might get a bit lost in the joy and innocence and fun of Henry's journey. Whereas by putting this here... We know that even though the next few scenes are joyous, that it's going to go to a very dark place very soon. Yeah. So I think it's really yeah. smart to to to, to just um, you know take that from the middle and put it at the beginning. Yeah, and it's a test. It's a testament to the film as well that I, I've mixed feelings about doing something like this at the start. I, I think we, I was talking to you about this, Victoria, the other day. Sometimes, if the film doesn't do it well. Uh, you end up waiting for the movie to catch up with the moment that it's shown you at the start because you're like, well, okay, this is great, but I know it's going to get to there. When are we going to get to there? That doesn't happen in this film because obviously it's a great film and it's a great script and the storytelling is fantastic and you sort of uh, immediately, you've almost forgotten that you're waiting for that moment to happen in the film. I mean, for example, I was. have you seen The Serpent, um, the drama that was on BBC One? No. You told me about it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, it it, it kind of does that. I enjoyed it. But at the very start of the first episode, it shows you a moment that is quite impactful. And you have to wait. I think it's, it's about eight episodes, the whole series. You have to wait until about episode six for it to catch up to that moment and by episode four you're getting impatient because you're like okay great but we we are now treading water until this narrative catches up with the bit you chose to show me at the start so here it works but sometimes i think it's um it's uh it's uh, a bit annoying (laughs) yeah fair enough i think as well because of the charisma that's sort of like coming off really otter there is also there was also a thought in my mind the first time I watched it that maybe the body in the trunk was morally just a bad dude even within the world of uh, mobsters. So I wasn't sure. What, by the time you get to the Billy Bat story, he you know he shouldn't really have been killed. It's over a really petty argument within the logic of being a made man and all the rest of it. But when you first see that scene, you sort of think, well, maybe he maybe he had it. You know, in inverted commas, he deserved it kind of thing. So you can suspend your revulsion maybe a little bit of like how horrible the death is. And then it's so much fun that when you get there and you realize it was over nothing and and all the rest of it. And let's just talk. Um, a little bit about voiceover because, as you know, I don't particularly like them, but I think it's. But I don't like them because of this film because this film is the rule that proves the exception because it is the gold standard of narration and voiceover. Um, Nicholas Pelleggi said, <laughs> "This is a brilliant quote from the GQ articles, which explains why I feel about it. Um, a lot of movies go to voiceover almost as a crutch after the fact." which is true. Uh, voices don't work. Uh, voiceover doesn't work unless you've got really great voices and all the rest of it. And Nicholas Pledge, would talk to Henry Hill all the time when we were writing the mu- movie and all that dialogue is almost verbatim stuff. You could have given Marty and me all the drugs in Malibu and we could not have made up that dialogue, which, <laughs> which I think is brilliant. Um, I think there are some occasions where there's too much voiceover where he's telling you what's happening on screen when I don't think it's necessary. Um, yeah, towards the end, especially as well. Yeah, but I, I do like uh, the fact that we are hearing Henry Hill himself, and it feels like a seduction. It feels quite dangerous, the voiceover, in that he's he's trying to get you to like him. He's justifying everything yeah. he's doing, 
and you do start liking him. So it's quite, um, I don't know, it makes it makes me feel quite mixed emotions, but in a, in a good way. Yeah, you do like him. You just do, just straight away. And so after that, we go back, we meet young Henry. Now, he's not an innocent, in the way that we'll get to in Boogie Nights, he's not an innocent involving himself in a sordid life he from the outset he wants that life from the when he's a t- he's not even a teenager is he? he's a he's a really young child he wants the respect uh we meet some of the key players who we'll get to know a bit better later on especially paul cicero and i know it's annoying just to quote things but paul he didn't have to move for nobody when i won't do something that mark wants me to do sort of go to the kitchen and do whatever he says that to me all the time so he says it to me maybe about three times a day making out <laughs> that i'm just this big giant man that won't get off my fat ass and do anything um and yeah so we sort of end this section with henry fully immersed in the life young henry the world of the child ends um and he's torching tons of cars i got an interesting fact about that kid christopher Cerrone, who plays young henry hill in the movie um, after the film, he got into a lot of fights at school because he was the kid from Goodfellas. Uh, and I think it was actually quite unpleasant for him. I found a quote uh, from him much later in life when he said, he says, when I turned 18, I'd been in at least a few hundred fights. My mum was scared and worried when I'd go out at night. There was a time for about four or five years when I would be out at a bar and I'd hear, oh, really? And then a guy would appear and say, so you think you're so-and-so, do you? Where are your mob buddies now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because That's people terrible. thought he was full of himself because he was playing a gangster and, like, he had all these gangster mates in the movie. So taking him out and having a fight with him and beating up, up in a fight got you props from your schoolmates. It's awful. It is awful. It is awful. Um, so the next section, section two, is called Funny How. Are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so... Young Henry and young Tommy. Oh, just a quick mention of how amazing the casting of young Tommy is. I know he's only in it for like two seconds, but he's exactly a young Tommy. It's unbelievable. Anyway, so young Henry, young Tommy, all grown up, enjoying their life. And in this scene, this infamous scene, they've got the run of the bamboo lounge. This is, I mean, I think this is, what do you think? This is why Joe Pesci won an Oscar for this scene, no? Yeah, I mean, I think he's great in the whole thing, but I mean, this this is an incredible scene. and. Just, it's the bit where he runs out of breath. I just love that bit where he's like, funny how? And he's like really <laughs> raspy. It's just, it's great because he's so caught up in berating him. I have a question about this scene. Do you, maybe it's a really simple question that I've never really bothered to ask before and you're going to go, yeah, obviously. But nevertheless, I'm going to ask it. Do you think that he changes his mind halfway through when he's having a go at Henry and go, is he genuinely angry and then he decides to let it go halfway through his speech? Or do you think from the start, as he makes out, he was joking all along? Because I've never worked that out. I think the whole thing is a wind-up, a mm. power play wind-up. I don't think he was ever going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, not not once, personally. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, like you say, they, they're sitting around. Tommy's holding court. The way we ought to, uh, Ray Liotta laughs in this scene, as you know, I'm a big <laughs> laugher. The way he laughs doesn't quite work on a podcast, but he's like, what? He's got like, he's like this. He's like, ah! Like, it looks like it's hurting. Now, I respect that, obviously. Um, and so 
Tommy's making everyone laugh, really, or to say, you know, you're a funny guy, and it doesn't go over well at all. And so we have this infamous scene, which was improvised and then woven into the script um, of Tommy winding Henry up that he you know, thinks he's going to kill him because he's, he's laughing at him. Am I like a clown to you and all the rest of it? Now, the reason this scene, personally, for me, resonated so much is because I recognise it from school, but not from people... Uh, quoting it in the playground but from the fucking psycho kids i went to school with who would use a similar tactic to legitimize trying to beat the shit out of you did this happen to you at school this happened to me at uni yeah happened to me with a guy yeah, really a guy in a pub at uni who i knew a bit a local guy who'd been in and out in and out of prison and he was called um tiger woods was what everyone called him because he didn't, there was an advert on the telly at the time where the, every all the kids would say, "I'm Tiger Woods" in this Nike advert, and so he called himself Tiger Woods because he didn't know people knowing he didn't want people knowing his real name because it made life simpler because of his issues with the police, with the law, and in and out of prison. Right. And yeah, he started on me one day in the pub, and it's he was seen to be joking at first, and then he wasn't, and it was terrifying because I knew it's I, terrifying. by that point I knew that he had a gun in his car. <laughs> right <laughs> but I, I made my excuses and left but yeah i had a, yeah. I had a tommy moment yeah that's why that's why it makes me it makes me feel scared because i that's that's yeah people using that it just you know very damaged crazy people anyway um, isn't it based on a real story that happened to joe pesci though when he worked as a waiter and he said to a mobster he was serving that he, he described him as funny and it didn't go down well and a similar altercation occurred. It's part of the reason he's in the film. Um, Scorsese said that that uh, initially Pesci turned him down for the role and then they went up to Scorsese's apartment and Pesci said, let me tell you a couple of stories. If you can find a place for this sort of thing, then I think we could make it special. And this, that's one of the stories he told. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, as, as Vicky says, they, they, they wrote it down, they improvised around it, they put it in the script, and Nicholas Pileggi, <laughs> the screenwriter, was over the moon because it had nothing to do with him. He didn't know anything really about it at the time. And uh, everyone still credits him to this day, saying what a brilliant job he did. He said, I've won awards. I've won awards off the back of that scene that had nothing to do with me. Yeah, there's a bit that I only really noticed. I think I've seen this film three or four times and I only notice it this time and after that you know the bar owner goes up to Tommy and he wants him to pay the bill and he's embarrassing him in front of his friends he's like you know we spend a fortune in this place so they hit the bar owner won't leave it alone so Tommy hits him and Henry's laughing his head off but Tommy says to him you're supposed to be doing this stuff too which is like you're supposed to be a gangster as well and intimidating people and harassing people but the way he says it I think it's a funny line anyway and it made me laugh but I, it made you think as well because there must be a lot that's not in this film, which we can talk about more later. But this is Henry Hill telling Henry's story. And there are moments later where there's a lot of killing that Henry doesn't do that you wonder if that's really how it went, given who he is and who he was like working for. So that makes you think of that in that moment. It's like you're supposed to be a gangster, but you're just sitting there and watching like you do a lot in this film. It he, makes um, you well, the, the truth is, he, you know, he didn't he wasn't a particularly violent person. And that's why he's not included on some things. Like he would come to Jimmy in real life with the the marks, with the crimes to commit, but then they wouldn't bring him to do the crimes because they didn't trust him to carry out the violence when it was required. And that's why he's he 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 puts the Lufthansa heist together, but then he's not on the heist because Jimmy didn't trust him 
with a gun. That's like a dream. That's a dream job, really, isn't it? Like you know when you work in a pub, <laughs> but you know that pubs are open in the day. You're like, can I have the nine to five Monday to Friday shift? And they're like, no, uh, you can work <laughs> double shifts through the night like everyone else. If you're gonna be a gangster, it would be brilliant to be like, I won't. I, as long as I don't have to like smash anyone's face in with a gun, I'm I'm in. <laughs> anyway, that's my person. Those are my feelings. Anyway, um, times are tight. So that's that done. Number three, the Copa shot. Yes. So <laughs> let's talk about the uh, most famous tracking shot in history. So in the book, in Nicholas Pledge's book, there is, what is this, like three sentences? Okay, here we go. On crowded nights when people were lined up outside and couldn't get in, the doorman used to let Henry and our party in through the kitchen, which were filled with Chinese cooks, and we'd go upstairs and sit down immediately. That's from Karen in the book that's all there is so from that you then i think it's like 40 words you then get this sort of three just under three minute long single tracking shot henry is taking karen through the copacabana on a date showing her how generous he can be how special he is and therefore how well he could treat her to the crystals then he kissed me and it's amazing. Um, it would. It took half a day. So the Steadicam operator is called Larry McConkie. So it was a long half day. Eight attempts to get what he wanted. Martin Scorsese really wanted, you know the bit where they get through to the the uh, seating area and this table, this tiny table that seems to fly through the air like an illusion where the waiter has sort of got the tablecloth and it looks like it's sort of swooshing through. That was really important to him. Um, but it also sets up that uh, Henry really likes his life. Again, he's not this wide-eyed innocent. Um, and it's a very, very seductive scene because no expense has been spared. And you can, you have to see why Karen would fall for it. And I think we are as seduced by it as she is. Agreed, and and the truth is, isn't it that that um I think it's in that GQ article they they say that Brian De Palma had had done his incredibly long Steadicam shot in The Untouchables, and Scorsese decided it'd be funny to try and do one minute longer than De Palma, <laughs> and so they say the the world perceives this as oh the amazing Copacabana scene when in reality it's directors behind the scenes fucking with each other, and that's how this happened. Yeah. <laughs> it does I, every time I've ever walked through a kitchen. Mm. in a restaurant or bar, this scene always pops into my head. And Why normally you I probably through kitchens? Do you get to well, go in round the back like Henry? Is this part of your <laughs> <laughs> you want cue policy? <laughs> I, I I thought I'd do it as a joke at the start. He's cooking the food. That didn't fly, so I've just uh, I've decided to to sort of drop it in casually, so it becomes a, a myth. Like no one's sure if it's real or not. But yeah, right. I've I've walked through a few a uh, few kitchen restaurants. No, uh, stand up clubs. When you do stand up and they don't have oh. a dressing room, you're normally hanging out in the kitchen of uh, behind the scenes. <laughs> waiting to go on stage so and Q&A sometimes <laughs> same with Q&As when you're hosting them you've got to come yeah. from behind the scenes um, they, they yeah. shot it but seven- is it alright if I pretend that I, I enter <laughs> I, let me let me have that come on I don't want to just be standing around in a kitchen waiting to go on and do a Q&A let me have coming in and someone floating a table through the air for me <laughs> they, they shot it seven or eight times and I like the reasons it went wrong one of them Scott says he wasn't happy with the way uh, the tables arrived for Henry. He said they've got to fly in, make them fly in. And that's because he saw this literally as a kid and his mental image was of it being like a magic trick. They flew in, the tablecloth and the lamp were on top of it and then it was all done, the plates and the and the lights. So they had to get that right. But the other funny thing is it ends with Henny Lung- Youngman, the comedian, playing himself on stage doing... Uh, how do you rate the, the joke that Henny Youngman tells, Alex? <laughs> uh, what does he open with? Take my wife, please take her. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it, I, it's the phrase. It's it's of the time. Uh, I believe that's how it's best described. Apparently, so so uh, I went. To, I checked Henny out. Uh, he was English American. Um, I checked out his Wikipedia page, and um, it says he was an English American comedian and musician, famous for his mastery of the one-liner. His most famous joke being "Take my wife, please." So that's <laughs> that's literally what he's known for. They reckon he said it twenty thousand times in his life, and he got it wrong when they were shooting this. <laughs> <laughs> How did my, you get it wrong? My thing with this whole scene is, and this is the reason I could never actually genuinely enter a restaurant and have a table set up right at the front for me, because I'm watching it and I'm I'm relieved in the scene when it turns out Henry knows the people just behind him because I'd be so conscious of blocking their view to the stage, which is why I'd just be like, do you mind? I mean, can we put this table here? Is that all right? They've sort of put it here, so we're just going to – can you still see? Okay, great. And so when he turns around and it's like, hey, hey, and they're sending him champagne and what have you, I'm like, oh, thank God, because they know him and so it's all fine. Otherwise, it's a really awkward moment. That's true. But I, I, I read somewhere, someone called it, it's how nonfiction blossoms into art. And I do think the combination of the plot and theme and character in a shot is brilliant. And also, I just love the way it ends with a good punchline as well when she says, what do you do? And he says, I'm in construction. <laughs> yeah. It's such a funny button. <laughs> it's such a funny way to end the scene that it's, it's perfect. It is perfect. It's perfect. It's the sort of thing you just watch again and again. It's perfect. It's a it's a, a dance. It's amazing. Uh, so, section four, Billy Bats is back again, which is nice. I thought that's me attempting humour there, just a bit of alliteration, just to try and um, mix things up for you. So, um, Henry... Do you, want, uh, do you want Billy Bats to be back again after a little break, or do you want to do Billy Bats being back again right now? <laughs> uh, do you know what? Yeah, let's um, let's have a small break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. This week at Sukarnov. Over at Self Care Club, wellness road tested, Lauren and Nicole discussed intuitive eating and rebelling against diet culture. Actually, I'm really proud of myself that I did that because it was hard and it was bloody brave to actually stand up and say, you know what? I choose my life. I choose to have quality of life. I choose to be two dress sizes bigger and much fucking happier for it. For even more great content, there's also a brand new episode of Between the Lines with Melissa Reddy, who sat down with Borussia Mönchengladbach's assistant manager, René Marich. He talked through his journey from a football blogger to coaching one of the most exciting football teams in Europe. He always focused on the next game and he focused on every opponent, no matter which competition and uh, the level of the opposition. He always focused on each opposition the same in terms of investment of time and resources. All that and a whole lot more at Sukarnov. Thanks for that. <laughs> okay, so we're back and Billy Bats is back again. Yes? Yep. All right, so so Henry by this point is made, but not properly made, which is an important point. Although I believe the Mafia have changed the rules recently, but because he's half Irish, he can never be a made man because he's not fully Italian. Um, have, they, have they changed the rules? I read they changed the rules, yeah, because... Well, it's daft not to. Like, they've got a recruitment issue, so... HR, uh, HR maybe, had to sort it out. It's an HR issue, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's 2021. You just can't get away with that anymore. You absolutely cannot. Um, you do need... You need a policy, frankly. And now they have one. Yeah, I think they opened it... Yeah, because they do struggle to get people <laughs> to do this stuff. And if someone wants to do it, but they've got an Irish dad, I think you've just got to let them do it. Um so importantly they, in this section, I read, I'm sure I read somewhere. I wish I'd actually looked this up. Haven't they flourished during uh, the pandemic, the mafia? I'm sure there was something about them uh, making the most out of um, this situation. I imagine that a lot of black market enterprises are doing very well because that's always the way, isn't it? In um, straightened times or times of crisis. So it sounds plausible. It would have been nice if you'd looked it up because it might have been an interesting story, but don't worry about it. It's all right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Sorry. I just, I, I just did seven days work on boogie nights, uh, which I'm going to read out <laughs> ad verbatim on Thursday. All right. So um, it's important in this session, uh, this section, Karen now knows what Henry does because there's a very brutal, but if we're being honest, a very exhilarating revenge scene. Revenge? Avenge? Um, Karen is hassled by the guys that live across the street and Henry just sorts it out. And the, I mean, I, I do not like, I'm squeamish about violence and this violence is too much for me. Like the way that Henry hits that boy, man, with his gun is fucking nasty as you like. It's the sound production. The sound yeah. on it is incredible. The metal of the gun against the bone of the nose, it, it's, it's so well done. Is that the only yeah. bit of violence we truly see Henry do in the film? Uh, because it's interesting yeah. that it's 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 protecting uh, the woman he loves. It, it does make him seem, I think, this film maybe more honourable than he was. Because although I yeah. said they didn't let him do the violent acts, he did kill people. You know, he went to prison. He's talked about it since. Um, he's quite yeah. crazy, actually. I've, before he passed away, he would appear on Howard Stern quite a lot once he'd come out of witness protection. And I watched some of those videos <laughs> this week, and he'd invariably be drunk. 
showing off about the things he'd done. And he just came across like a complete Wally, to be honest. He does not come across as cool as Ray Liotta here. <laughs> was, uh, uh, was, I think he was thrown out of witness protection for after his third drug bust while in witness protection. They went, oh, well, just no, just yeah, no. He, 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 was, um, he was thrown out as well for, for drinking. Uh, you know, he was an alcoholic and drinking. And once Goodfellas came out, once he had a drink in him, he couldn't wait to tell people that he was Henry Hill. That was that was his thing, and they they said this this witness protection is not going to work if you keep telling everyone that's me. Rule number one: do not tell anyone who you are. Rule number two: stop selling drugs. That's it. Those are, those are both the rules. The um, that what you say about him appearing honourable? I I didn't read it as that personally. I I, I think it's a, it's it's a slight on him. He takes it as a slight that this guy has seen him with her and that this guy still dares to touch her uh, despite knowing that it's Henry's. She's Henry's girl mm. at this point. So it's it's male it's male pride that sure. has been injured, and that's why he's so angry. I'm sure there is a little bit of like. You know, she she sounded distressed on the phone, but I really think... Yeah, you know, I think he's quite he annoyed the guy's tried to rape his wife as well. I think that's part of the issue. It's irksome, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, when that happens, uh, it is irritating. Um, but she's into it, which is good. So they are, they're, they're together now. So we get these brilliant montages and sort of these, these scenes that build where we're at parties, people have got money, there's gambling, there's women. We see their beautiful homes, which aren't beautiful, but are amazing. Um, you can have anything you want. You can have family, you can have girls on the side, anything you want. Um, Karen is a little bit intimidated Maybe not. It's intimidated, the right words. Uh, aghast is a bit strong, but she doesn't quite want the life that the other wives have. They've got too much makeup. They've got bad skin. They beat their kids. Uh, but she doesn't seem too they appalled spit, by so it. Yeah, they spit on the floor. She spits <laughs> on her own, own floor. I just didn't get it. I, yeah. I think it's. I think it's. She's a bit. I think she's a little bit above it. I think she see, She's looking down at them a little bit in that scene. Yeah, I agree with you. She is looking down and she thinks they, she says they don't look good. And that, I'm not saying looking good is that important to her, but I think she's trying to say they don't look healthy. Like this life, oh, and the, their clothes are cheap. So they're not wearing, then, you know, the money is somewhere, but it's not necessarily on them kind of thing. Um, but important, uh, the important part of this section is Billy is back. So we've met them, we've met the beginning of the film. So here's Billy. And this is where we see the truly like psychotic nature of Tommy's petty side. So Billy's winding him up about Tommy's beginnings, which when he was a shoeshine um, and and teasing him, but then he, he does disrespect him to be like Robert De Niro says, he did disrespect him a little bit. Um, so Jimmy and Tommy with Henry watching, kill him, kill him dead. Uh, but that's a mistake. And so depending on how you think of it, it's the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning for Henry. After this point, things are going to slide for him because Billy was a made man and you don't touch him. And as the audience, we get to see, because the world that Henry has set up does sound appealing. There is, you know, if you play by certain rules, you will be fine and you will be rich and you will be happy and you will have security, honor, stability, uh, anything you want. But then he admits that people are getting killed over petty arguments. And then later, Tommy kills Spider. And so this idea of honor among thieves or at least. Um, a safety net of rules is is a fallacy. Um, there is it doesn't exist. If you're in the mafia, you are living a very dangerous life. Yeah, and the truth is is slightly different to how it's presented here as well. Here it looks like Jimmy's helping Tommy to kill Billy, but in truth, um, while Billy was in prison, it was Jimmy who took over his business pretty much, and Billy wanted it back. 
And so in reality, I believe the truth is that Tommy helped Jimmy kill Billy. Um, and it, and, and it, it wasn't over oh, okay. such a petty uh, argument like this, which does seem slightly over the top. Um, to, to, you know, yeah. Tommy's in the wrong because, you, you know, you're supposed to show respect to a made man. But, but it, is, it does seem insane when you watch it here. And, and the truth it makes a bit more sense. Yeah. It, I I didn't know that. I I think with like with so many of these things, there are numerous stories because there's a story that I read where he said that that is pretty much how it happened, and that this guy mentioned him being a, a shoe shiner back in the day, and that what doesn't happen. I don't think he actually says it in the film, but he turned to Jimmy and Henry talks about overhearing Tommy turn to Jimmy and say, "I'm going to kill that fucking guy." And I think there's there's an issue with the casting here as well because I wouldn't change the casting, but I think Tommy was 28 when he died, and so uh, it, it, Joe Pesci almost seems a bit ridiculous uh, in his 50s behaving like this. Whereas someone who's still in their <laughs> 20s, you could almost understand that immature um, streak that he's got. So honestly, uh, you know, um, Tommy is more that would be more the age that Ray Liotta is. And then, and then Henry would be more the age that Michael Imperioli, who plays Spider, is. If they'd cast this accurately, rather than casting actually actors that were double the age of the people that they were in mm. real life. Well, there is that moment uh, which you sort of go. I mean, I know it sort of sets up the time period that this is going to take place over, but it's almost laughable when the voiceover goes. When I first met Jimmy, he was what. 28, 29, <laughs> and you're looking at Robert De Niro going, he's not. Yeah. He, is, he, is, well, he is not 28 or 20. Look at him. Come and, on. And Ray Liotta, they, you know, they say he's 21 when he first meets Karen, and Ray Liotta's clearly not 21 as well. He's clearly in his <laughs> mid-30s. So it's, uh, yeah, the, the math is slightly wrong. They obviously, he obviously cast actors who he believed could bring out the essence of these characters, but... They're certainly not, you know, age appropriate. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think it's testament to how f- amazingly it's acted. That the first time I saw Robert De Niro, I was, I did have that fleeting of like, you are not in yeah. your late twenties. Although it's I take, bonkers. I take, I take this way of doing it over the um, de aging in the Irishman. Oh God, I was, um, yeah, I was never a fan of that. It just, I found it very creepy. You know, in that kind of Polar Express creepy way. So, um, <laughs> so th- I'd, I'd much rather. I, I'm I'm happy to gloss over, like going, "Hey, he's not really 21. Let's move on." Then spend why? How long's the Irishman? Twelve hours. Yeah, watching <laughs> people like have weird faces. So in this section, Henry's going to end up in prison. Uh, prison looks amazing. Uh, if you like steak and lobster, which I do, and whiskey, which I do. Um, and I just want to give a special mention to my favourite scene in this section, which is, do you remember the scene where Henry and Karen are messing around in their bedroom and Sandy's in the room and they're walking out of the room and the way he's looking at her, she walks into the door frame. And yeah. apparently that was an accident. She tripped over the dolly track, but Martin Scorsese kept it in because it needed to show like the, the power that Henry would have if he looked at you like that. And I'd sort of forgotten about that scene. And I read this in research. I was like, I don't remember it being like this magnetic, but fucking hell, the look he gives her, I'm not fucking surprised she walked into the door. I'm surprised her clothes didn't explode off. It's unreal. 
that look I don't unreal. Know. It's 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 a look, but it to me, he looks like he looks hungry. Like she's a, a meat. <laughs> yeah, he looks good. like oh, yeah. he looks oh okay. Okay, that's, right, yeah. Well if that's yeah. what you like, if you want to be looked at but like like that lupine fucking like I am I'm just gonna eat you. I'm gonna eat I'm the uh, big yeah. bad wolf right here. Yeah. A okay. hundred yes, a hundred and twenty thousand oh. percent. <laughs> <laughs> You want a man to look at you. You just do. Or a woman. Whatever. Okay, so um, the last section uh, I'm just going to call Layla. Um, and this is sort of racing to the end a little bit, but just to sort of go through how things come undone. Um, Henry, Tommy and Jimmy pull off the Lafanza heist, which I think it's still officially unsolved, but it was the biggest in American history at the time worth $6 million in cash. But it all unravels and to the piano section from Layla, which is amazing, the bodies start turning up. Um, and Jimmy just kills everyone involved. Um, and Henry says, but not him, which, <laughs> which I can sort of see because Henry's got a, a drug deal thing going on on the side which he started in prison, which will eventually be his undoing because Paulie's not into it, which I do understand because 1980, American war on drugs, the penalty, the prison sentence for the slightest involvement were extremely, extremely punitive. So you can understand why someone who is a bit more old school like Paulie would just be like, we're making money enough without getting involved in anything like that. Yeah, it wasn't just Paulie. Um, the, the five families really did avoid drugs at that time. Um, because of exactly what you say, because um, you'd go to prison for so long, there was much more chance of people squealing. And so, as you say, it was not yeah. on moral grounds. It was simply a decision across the board. Uh, they obviously changed their tune pretty soon when they realised how much money they could make, but uh, they were being smart at this point. Yeah, there's an amazing line uh, in this scene, you know, when they're in the bar and people, uh, I can't remember his name, but he's bought the pink Cadillac and someone's bought his wife a big fur coat and Jimmy's getting pissed it's off Johnny because Roast people beef. are spending money. It's Johnny Roast Beef. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tommy's girlfriend's there and Tommy's just doing his usual like psycho thing and she says, he's so jealous. If I look at anyone else, he'll kill me. And the woman next to her goes, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it just sums up like that madness that like he is he's just dangerously psychotically jealous but it can be like piling into like but that's cool because he obviously like really loves you or really fancies you or whatever um and i, I love that so we're gonna go through the i'm not gonna go through it the film is gonna go through the last day of um henry's freedom so he's moving drugs around the place. He's dodging helicopters. He's taking his brother to hospital. He's overseeing this huge dinner. Um, and the energy of that final section is is meant to display, I believe, the feeling of being on cock, which I think it does. Um, he's finally busted. And so Paul, he's got to turn his back, which is what he said he would do. I mean, he's very lucky that that's all he says he's going to do. Um and Jimmy tries to kill Karen. The, I love that line so much where he's showing her the warehouse and he's like, I've got some Dior dresses. And in any other script, she would nod and walk towards the door. She would say, oh, thank you, and walk towards the door. But she says, okay, for my mother. And it's like, that's just such a good touch. Like She doesn't want to be greedy. She wants to pretend that these dresses are for her mum. They're probably not, but she can't quite resist. Even in the state she's in, she's got nothing, but she can't resist a, you know, a designer dress. I just think it's... It's perfect. And it, and that Jimmy would know that that would be her Achilles heel as well, I think is really good. Um, so, yeah, Henry turns state. A little fun fact for you here. The person offering him the deal is Ed McDonald, 
the actual person who offered Henry actual witness protection in real life. Yeah. Isn't that funny? He's, he's actually really good at playing himself as well. He ended up having a bit of a it's career bad, after yeah. that. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't, it's not, it's not that easy, I don't think, playing yourself, but he, he had a bit of a career after that popping up in TV and films. Yeah, so he really said to Karen, apparently, don't give me the babes in the woods routine because she tries to get wriggle out of witness protection which mm. is mad because they'll definitely kill her. But um, he said that to her, like, don't give me that babes in the woods thing. And then to the sound of Sid Vicious and My Way, we're out of there. He's a schnook. That's it. We're done. Um, the important thing is for this film, the thing that Henry is sad about, I think, not that he ratted on his friends and not that he spilled all their secrets, but that he doesn't have that life. That's the thing he's more sad about. He yeah. doesn't have that life anymore. Which you can understand because it looked amazing. Yeah, and I, I think I think the clue as well is is in. Did you hear? It's first time. Probably what I probably watched this film genuinely twenty times, which is embarrassing. But I had never noticed before the sound effect when he shuts his door at the end. It's no. the, it's the sound of a prison uh, jail cell slamming. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> so so this is it. It's purgatory. It's prison. You know, he's become he's become the things he wanted to avoid. Uh, he became yeah. a gangster to avoid all the things he now has to do. But isn't it funny how you just you don't feel and you, you don't feel any you feel like you don't feel sorry for him. It's sad in his dressing gown. That dressing gown. I know I was making a joke about it, but it is really nasty. <laughs> so it's meant you know even though he's saying I can't get marinara sauce, I can only get tomato ketchup and noodles. You're meant to be like oh poor you, but the dressing gown really buttons it because you're like that does look like a boring life. I don't th- I don't think that. I think you don't feel sorry for him because I think he's been quite disre- disrespectful to the audience. He's looking at us and saying yeah. now I'm an average nobody. I get to live the rest of my life as like a schnook like you. Yeah, like you. Sid. There, which is it's yeah, disrespectful. That's, that's that's what Scorsese wanted in that scene. I think. I think he said he wanted the audience to be angry with him. That his only regret was the fact that he was no longer a wise guy. Yeah. Um. So that's all I have. Do you want to do the bits? Or have you got any more? I got a couple of things. Uh, where are they? I'll, I'll I'll link to these on on Twitter. But Alex Godfrey, a great journalist, he's done lots of um digging around about Goodfellas and found out some really fun things. Like he he wanted to look into um, who Maury is. Uh, so Maury, Maury's wigs, you know, there's the funny advert. Oh, yeah. Um, he's uh, Morris Kessler. He's based on a real guy called Marty Crookman, who was a 1970s bookmaker and owner of a hairdresser and wig salon for men only, which is up the street from Henry Hill's nightclub. Um, but the actor who plays him is Chuck Lowe, who is just, um, he was just uh, De Niro's landlord. He, he was a landlord who wanted to be an actor. He kept bugging De Niro and he's ended up having um, scenes in his, his IMDb is King of Comedy, Once Upon a Time in America, The Mission, Goodfellas, Night in the City, Sleepers. He's got like <laughs> scenes and lines in all these films and that's all he's done is just keep bugging De Niro. And he's brilliant in this. He's so brilliant when he's bugging Jimmy. Yeah. You're just, you're just you're desperate for him to shut up, but he, you know he's not going to, yeah. and, and, and that's his end. <laughs> um, and sorry, his name is Crook, Crookman, and he's a uh, Marty, Krug, and he's Marty called... Krugman was the was the real oh, life Krug, guy. I thought you said, sorry. Yeah, I, like I, I probably said it. I, like, I probably mm. said it wrong. Um, okay. And his advert, his advert, Alex, Alex discovered, um, basically one night, Scorsese's watching telly, and he saw a crude TV commercial for a Windows company. Uh, which I've watched. I'll, I will link to that, which is very funny. It's just a guy standing in front of a building and all this money coming out of the windows. And he said, I want that. <laughs> so he tracked down the boss of the company that did the window advert uh, is a guy called Stephen Packer. Stephen Packer not only ran the company, 
he's the guy on screen selling the windows and he wrote and directed it. So Scorsese simply um, gave him money and said, go away and make the Moriad. And he did it. Scorsese <laughs> had nothing to do with it. He sent no crew. And so that advert is is done by just some amateur. And that's, I don't know, that's one of the best scenes in the film, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and it had absolutely nothing to do with Scorsese. He just knew what he wanted and left the guy to it. That's great. That's really great. Uh, um, and the other thing that Alex Alex uh, sort of investigated was um, you, we didn't talk about the scene where Tommy and Jimmy and Henry visit Tommy's mother um, with with <gasps> oh, the body yeah, in the, the boots. Yeah, and, and she's yeah. she's Catherine Scorsese, obviously uh, Marty's mum. Um, bit like a bit like Chuck. Uh, I just mentioned she's in Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, King of Comedy, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, <laughs> Casino. <laughs> Her only non Scorsese movie is Godfather Three. Um, <laughs> but um, so that painting that they talk about, um, Alex was intrigued by that. So he found out uh, it, it was actually by um, the Goodfellas writer, Nicholas Pelegi's mother painted it. And it was an interpretation of a photo from a photograph uh, from a, a, an issue of National Geographic in 1978. And the chap in the photo was called John Weaving, who'd retired from a career in banking to become a river nomad. And he lived in Ireland. And those dogs are called Brocky and Twiggy. Uh, but the guy who did the photo, the guy, he's dead now. So he never knew that he was in Goodfellas. The guy who took the photo never knew he was in Goodfellas. So Alex kind of broke the news to these people. And then he mentioned this to Scorsese when he interviewed him. Scorsese tracked down Alex's article about the, the photo and sent him a lovely letter. Um, Alex said he wrote about uh, his story, about shooting the scene, about his mother. And he said it was a really lovely, gracious and touching letter, Scorsese sent him. So I'll post that as well. It's just if you want to know all about that photo, uh, there's a really interesting story behind it. And it's a great painting, I think. I think um, <laughs> is it? I think Tommy's mum has, has got talent. Yeah. One, I don't know if you know, but one dog's looking one, east, one's looking west. <laughs> one, dog, one, one dog goes one way, the other goes the other way. It's incredible. And this guy's like, what do you want from it? It's very good. It's very good. Uh, uh, and the only thing I, I think, I'm, before we do the bits I wanted to mention, is is the fact that this this tested really badly, Goodfellas. Like, people did not like it in early screenings, especially when it got to the drug scene, to the scene where Spider gets killed. Audiences did not like when it all started going wrong. And so the studio got worried and a film that was supposed to open in 2000 theatres opened in 1000 theatres and it got good reviews, but by then it was too late. And there's a quote from that GQ magazine saying, um, basically they couldn't get into bigger theatres because Dance with Wolves was the winner. That made the money, that won the Oscars. But Imperioli says it, he says, when was the last time you rented Dance with, Wol with Wolves? <laughs> and it's true, that was the one that screwed Goodfellas over uh, business-wise and awards-wise, and yet I, mm. I've never, I haven't spoken about that film in about fifteen years. So um, no, it won the long game. Yeah, exactly. Uh, bits, yes. Bits. Uh, okay, Chris, what's your best scene? Uh, uh, so always torn between Copacabana and Funny. They're the two most famous scenes. But I was thinking that I've seen the Copacabana scene a lot since then, even though it's people copying Scorsese, but I've never seen a moment quite like the funny scene. So it's got to be that. Okay, good choice. And you, Alex? Ditto from over here in North London. It's the funny <laughs> scene. Um, either that or the cooking scene in prison when he's slicing the garlic so thin with that razor blade. I think it's, yeah. I, it's just 
you remember those old Marks and Spencer's adverts? It's like that times a billion where you're like, I just need to eat garlic that thin right now. It looks incredible. In fact, all the food in this film, every scene with food in it, the food looks amazing. Even those bologna and mustard sandwiches, I was like, it looks like a good bologna sandwich. So It food looks scenes. like, i tell you why you like that scene, because if you're anything like me, you enjoy uh, a hotel breakfast buffet as one of the, mm. uh, the best things in your life. Mm. It looked like a cheap... Oh, no, cheap. That's unfair. Uh, a chain hotel breakfast buffet. And that is genuinely one of life's actual pleasures. Sometimes and, you know, you... all you want, sometimes all you want is processed meat and mighty <laughs> white bread. And, <laughs> and you're made up. Bit of, slap a bit of mustard on that. Lot of marge and I'm away. No salad, no nothing. <laughs> you processed know, meat, <laughs> mustard, white bread. All the food yeah. in the film, or certainly the food when they're sitting around the mum's table and then at the end that's being cooked... Um, when he's on the cocaine, that food's all cooked by Catherine Scorsese. She would she would cook the Is food it? and bring it in. Um, and Henry Hill actually did write a cookbook when he was cashing <laughs> in. When he was cashing in on all this in October 20, 2002, he published the Wise Guy Cookbook: My Favorite Recipes from My Life as a Good Fella to Cooking on the Run. That's brilliant. I'll have, <laughs> please, can I have that for my birthday present? I'll make an official request now. <laughs> Um, my best scene. I'm gonna. I'm gonna vote for the Copa shot because it's fucking brilliant. Um, so your most valuable, whatever, Alex. Uh, Mr. Joe Pesci, please. I'd like Joe Pesci as mine. I just he's a force of nature in this movie. I'd never obviously seen him before in anything before I watched this, and um, yeah, terrifying and just brilliant. Just to watch him the first time as a youth, uh, I was just scared by him and the menace he exuded. To watch him now, he's still scary, but you just, the performance itself and just, I think the first time I saw it, not knowing him, like when you see an actor for, uh, in their first movie and you don't have any point of reference for them, you are taken with that character more than you are the actor because you don't recognize the actor. But to watch it again and not really see Joe Pesci and just see Tommy, it's a testament to the performance. I have a question, Alex. Are you trying to tell me you hadn't seen Home Alone? Do you know what? I don't think I had, actually. 1990, yeah, probably Are you not. the only kid I, in England? I, Are you the only kid in England that didn't see Home Alone? I, do you know what? If I did, I didn't realise it was Joe Pesci because yeah, at no point did I watch Goodfellas and think, oh my God, that's the guy from Home Alone. I think maybe maybe I had seen it, but I did not know that was Joe Pesci. They talk about actors having a great year though and, and doing two performances that are so different. I mean, I don't think anyone's had a year like 1990 for Joe Pesci being in the most successful comedy of all time and winning an Oscar for playing a character. That I mean, they're both villains, but very different kinds of villains. It's just phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, What's your and I like, I like, I quite like. I just one thing. I quite like the fact that he literally had to be coaxed out of retirement, baby, baby, baby steps, like get him out of retirement for the Irishman. I quite like someone who's like, I really don't want mm. to act anymore. Please leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> and Robert De Niro, <laughs> Scorsese, going, please, Joe, come on, this is a big deal. Him going. Fuck off. Um, uh, I'm going to go, as Alex has picked Pesci, I'm going to go for, I think, the film's unsung hero and say Lorraine Bracco uh, because mm. she she truly holds her own with these four acting heavyweights. And uh, we didn't men- we didn't talk about the fact that we, we get two narrators in this film. Suddenly she's, she's putting her side of the story across. And I think that comes uh, exactly when the film needs that, when you're a bit tired of hearing Henry and to get this other perspective. It's fantastic. And actually, she probably has the strongest arc of anyone in the film. 
You know, she's a complete innocent yeah. at the start of this movie. And yeah. she goes on a hell of a journey. And there's not a second where I don't I don't believe it or buy into her. So I'm picking Bracco. Yeah, I think she she herself felt that because it was such a male-heavy set and film, she really wanted to work very hard to, I guess, prove herself in the limited screen time that she has alongside the others. Um, but who I'm going to pick um, uh, the editor, Thelma Schoonmacher, because before I knew what I was seeing, it's her editing that drew me into this film so powerfully. And before I had the language to identify what it was, the opening shot, the tracking, the VO, the music, it's just incredible. There's a scene later when the music is cream sunshine of your love and the way that it's pieced together it's like every single movement on robert de niro's face sort of hits one of the beats or the riff it's just unreal um and also while they were making goodfellas so thelma schumacher was married to michael powell and and he died during the making of it so martin scorsese shut down production no sorry editing for two months um, while Thelma could look after her husband. And so then after he passed, she had to come back and finish it. And she said, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to live. And so it saved my life. And that to me is incredible. Like the fact that she was going through all that and did the most amazing job in the world. I think it's a very powerful story. So I'm choosing her. I, I got I got screwed over when I interviewed Thelma Schumacher once um, because five minutes, I, I do a lot of prep before I do an interview. And uh, five minutes before I went in, they said, oh, don't forget, you're, you're only asking her about Michael Powell. So no Scorsese questions. <laughs> and all I had was oh. Scorsese questions. <laughs> and I phoned up the office uh, and said, do you know about this? And they said, oh, yeah, we forgot to tell you. Yeah, it's a Michael Powell celebration you're doing. Oh, right. I was like, I've only, seen, I've only seen two Michael Powell films. Um, so well, there you go. <laughs> so I went, in, I went in and I said to her, look, my first question is, if you'd never seen a Michael Powell film, what journey would you advise people to take? What's the first film they should watch? Talk me through a way into his movies. And it was, she was so good. She was brilliant. She, she spoke about it for 20 minutes. And then I actually went on that journey myself. And it was a brilliant way into his movies. I'll have to dig it out because he, I think he is the greatest English director. And um, she, was such a, she was such a lovely lady. So, yeah. Power to, yeah. Power to What's your second question? What of of all Michael Powell's films? Which do you think is the most like Martin Scorsese's? And could you talk me through? How you <laughs> no, that's what you, I thought that's what you were going to say. I thought you were going to say if someone has never seen a Malcolm Powell film but has seen a lot of Scorsese, <laughs> what would you say to them? <laughs> um, so one change, Chris. What would you change? Uh, I've got. I'm going to shoehorn something else in I want to say, but the change, I think you, I wouldn't change anything. I think this film's perfect, but um, you could, if you wanted to, 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 to broaden it a little bit, I think you could show the heists. I'd quite like to see Martin Scorsese shooting the Lufthansa heist, um, but I don't think the film needs it. Also, I, I think another film should be better. Have you guys seen the sequel to Goodfellas that came out before Goodfellas? Do no. you even know about this? No. It was a comedy. It was a comedy. No. And, and it's not a direct. It well, it is kind of direct. So Nicholas Pileggi uh, was married to Nora Ephron. Oh, yeah. And, I do uh, know about So this. she was going through his interviews with Henry Hill at the same time he was. And she wrote My Blue Heaven. She wrote My Blue Heaven, the comedy that stars Steve Martin and Rick Moranis, um, about uh, a gangster in Witness Protection. Steve Martin plays the gangster. And it is abysmal. 
it, it, I saw it <laughs> because I could get into it as a PG. I saw that at the cinema on like Goodfellas, and it is terrible because a Steve Martin isn't funny and isn't convincing as a gangster, and analyze this figured it out. By you know casting yeah. a gangster as the gangster, that's where the humour comes from—a gangster trying to act normally, not a comedian trying to act tough. And so, yeah, I would recast that movie and have the sequel, you know, starring Ray Liotta. And you can keep Rick Moranis though; that's fine. <laughs> as Tommy, <laughs> uh, what would you change, Alex? Um, I don't know that I'd have. I don't know that I'd change anything. I mean, reading around the film, I think one thing that could have been included that sounds kind of funny was how once they um, wiretapped Henry Hill's house when the were uh, the um, narcotics detectives were coming down on him, and um, a lot of the wiretap transcripts you can read online, and he used to use code with his Pittsburgh connection to um, to fool the cops. And I, just, I would love to have seen a, a scene because the, the, the code they used is just so ridiculous. It's things like, you know, the golf club and the dogs you gave me in return. Can you still do that? Same kind of golf clubs. No, no golf <laughs> clubs. Can you still give me the dogs if I can pay for the golf clubs? You front me the shampoo and I'll front you the dog pills. <laughs> that, that to me screams a scene. Um, I actually thinking about that, there are a couple a couple of things that weren't included in the film that potentially could have been that would have made it a much darker film in actual fact. So when when Henry was in prison, apparently um, Karen um, slept with Paulie and um, Tommy also tried to sexually assault her, tried to, to rape her. And that's part of the reason Tommy got killed. The two reasons Tommy got killed was because of that, um, Paulie was unhappy with him trying to rape Karen, who he was sleeping with. And also Tommy, um, Tommy got seen during the Lufthansa uh, heist. He took his ski mask off briefly and he was identified by some of the hostages witnesses. So it's just funny the things they choose to leave out that wouldn't take much to add in. But, you know, it's mm. a long enough film as it is, I guess. But yeah, those are those are things that could have been added. How about you, Vicky? Yeah, I... I just, I don't honestly don't, I feel like a twat even suggesting anything because this film is perfect. So, but if I have to say one thing and it's such a tiny thing, when Henry and Karen realise that they're fucked and they've got to turn state and they're sort of sobbing and crying on the floor, I just, you could have a bit more of a Lady Macbeth vibe there. Like Karen is into the drugs, but she doesn't, it's not shown that she's kind of orchestrated anything or has convinced Henry to do anything. He convinces her when he's in prison that this is what they're going to do. And maybe for that scene to have a little bit more punch, she could have been as invested or as involved from the get-go so that when she tries to throw him under the bus when they're talking to Ed McDonald, that that would really make you realise that as a couple in suburbia, they're going to have real trouble because their relationship is broken because at the moment when the jig is up, she could be like... You, but you don't want me, even though she's like half culpable. Do you know what I mean? But that's it's a nothing thing because don't change anything, obviously. Well, lovely. That's the end of our look at Goodfellas. Just before we leave you, though, shall we do a quiz? Let's do a quiz. So, uh, Fat Andy, Frankie the Wop, Freddie No Nose, Nikki Eyes, Jimmy Two Times, and my favourite, Pete the Killer. Um, <laughs> those are some of the names of the gangsters in Goodfellas. I'm going to give you some gangster names. You got to tell me if they're real gangsters or if they are made up. <laughs> Starting oh, with um, Tony Ducks. Made up. Real. That is a point to Alex. 
He's real. He was a Lachese frontman given that nickname for his ability to avoid or duck subpoenas and convictions. Um, <laughs> Emilio, oh. Emilio the Vulture Butragueno. Wow. Real. <laughs> false. Point to Alex. That is false. Ivan... Yeah. Chris wouldn't. Chris wouldn't put two birds in a row: ducks and vultures. That's just unlike him. Oh yeah. Ivan Bam Bam Zamorano. Real. True. False. Oh. He was not a gangster. Joseph. Oh, but he was a person. He might have been a person. Um, we, we this to, feels. This got, feels. This feels. The wheels are coming off this quiz. So these are all people. Just some of them aren't gangsters. Well, you've got to wait and see if we, go to a, if we go oh. to a uh, tie break. Um, Joseph Junior Lollipops Karna. <laughs> True. 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 His father owned an eatery in Brooklyn called Lollies. Uh, Roberto the Mosquito and Zolin. False. <laughs> True. False. Alex is doing very well here. Alex knows his gangsters. Uh, Anthony the Ant. He does, but you know. Anthony the Ant Spilotro. (laughs) True. False. True. Uh, An FBI special agent called him a little piss ant, and that stuck. That's what the media called him from then on. Uh, (laughs) Great insult. Underused. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) Javier uh, the Tractor Zanetti. (laughs) <laughs> false oh fuck it false it's false well uh, done Vicky uh, Fabrizio the white feather Ravinelli true true false uh, oh. <laughs> Martin the titan Palermo false false that's false <laughs> And Angelo Quack Quack Ruggiero. Definitely False. true. No, I know Quack Quack. Quack Quack is true. Quack Quack is because after every time he killed a, killed someone, I, I did a hit, he'd go Quack Quack, and that was his sign-off. Uh, no, he was, he's true. He was part of John Gotti's inner circle, and he walked, uh, he had a duck-like waddle. Damn it! Um, <laughs> Alex has won that, but for the bonus... Can you tell me uh, what links are the names that weren't gangsters, as they're all nicknames of real people? Racing car drivers. Yeah, you see, people will be shouting at the, that know this. Zamorano, Zanetti, Ravinelli, Palermo, Butragueno. You're close, Alex. Are they football? Is it bloody footballers? It is. They're all Italian footballers. <laughs> <laughs> They're really famous ones as well. Fabrizio the Ravinelli, a.k.a. the White Feather. If he, you like football, they played. are, but you have to at least have a passing knowledge of the game to be able to then go... Well, they very fucking famous footballers, actually, Alex. I didn't know that. Victoria? No, no idea. It's not the point. The point was the gangsters. Well played, Alex. Um, but also, why was the guy who was a footballer called the Mosquito? I quite like that. Was he really fast and nimble and buzzing around the other players yep. or something? Or yep. did he drink their blood on the pitch? No, that's right. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> the, the white feather was simply because he had white hair. Oh, okay. Okay, Simple why don't we, give our, do we give our players such exciting names as white feather and Mosquito? It was sick note. Darren Anderton was sick note because he was always injured. <laughs> right. That's one. No is the answer. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's correct. 
Uh, right then, that's us done uh, for this show. Uh, we will be back to talk about Boogie Nights on Thursday. Uh, but in the meantime, Victoria, it's your choices for next week's show. Have you got a clue lined up for us? Yes, the clue is money can't buy me love. Oh, no way, it definitely can. Oh, good clue. Good clue there. Money can't buy me love. Oh, wait, it definitely can. Those are next week's shows. Get on Twitter at ClashPod if you'd like to guess those. Uh, like I said, we are back on Thursday with Boogie Nights. In the meantime, please subscribe to us, rate and review us where possible. It means a lot to us. Apple, Spotify, or indeed wherever you get your pods. Speak to you Thursday. See ya. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network. 